architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode I sit down with the practitioner and the educator Simon Henley of Henley Hale Brown Architects. Simon has written several books about architecture, most recently Redefining Brutalism, in which he captures the living tradition of brutalism as he sees it. And his practice has established a critical position within the discipline, one grounded in a scholarly respect for the history of architecture, both in its typologies and in its means of expression. And today their explorations into the language of architecture are being teased out via a series of remarkable housing projects, one of which, Chadwick Hall, was recently shortlisted for the Stirling Prize. There's an underlying concern for the robustness of architecture, both in its typological order and in its material manifestation. And this oscillation then between quite resonant formal presences and a kind of rich textural materiality. In this conversation, Simon and I range quite widely, as we tend to in these chats, touching on aspects of practice, the evolution of the language of the practice and the shaping of architectural education. I do hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Simon Henley, uh, you're very welcome while you're here in the Kingston School of Art, but you're very welcome joining us for this lecture and this podcast today. So thank you for coming and giving your time. Thank you, Andrew. The the form of these uh, interviews tends to start with a kind of how did you become interested in architecture? But maybe in this conversation, we might start another way around, which is that last year you were shortlisted for the Sterling Prize with work that was very thoughtfully made and not something that would be oriented towards big splashy awards and this kind of stuff. Because this project that we're talking about, Chadwick Hall, is this collection of very thoughtfully constructed buildings in quite a rich setting. And it's sort of, it feels like a... I mean, it was very interesting to shortlisted for the Sterling Prize because of two things, I guess. One being from the outside tracking the evolution of your project and it really felt like not a culmination but it felt like a very clear language had been established by the practice in that uh, in that project one that had taken a long time to evolve and gestate Mm. and it seemed to have its fullest expression for the first time in that project and then the second side of it is that it's not concerned with being fashionable is it right the way I've described it that that project feels like a kind of a a point where things cohered and things really started to make... Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. I mean, it was, it, it, it's a kind of watershed, and I'm not sure... I mean, I think it's it, what analogies you can give it, whether you can sort of say that it's like a... Uh, it, uh, you know, it's a, uh, a kind of a false summit. You know, it's a kind of... It's like we've arrived somewhere, and then do we go up again? Or actually, is it one of those things that you, you don't repeat? I don't mean that one doesn't, you know, that doesn't do another good piece of work, but... But somehow it it was the culmination. Of, it was also the culmination of, of of trying to resolve what seemed to be an irresolvable question. Not so much. I mean, the, the, the site's a fantastic site. We're in the context of historic buildings of the 18th century and historic buildings of the 20th century, in a in a parkland setting, with uh, a, a mature and sophisticated setting. And and what's interesting in a way, I suppose, was that the outcome was quite unpredictable. I, I'm not talking about the wards. I'm just talking about the building itself. That you know. It you know it started as a competition of sorts. Mm-hmm. We didn't win it with that scheme, but we didn't win it because we were trying to put lots of student rooms on it. Uh, nor did we win it necessarily, probably because we were being incredibly sensitive. Because the, the scheme evolved hugely, and it evolved because the 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 sort of plan of the building actually came from 
eventually understanding the site, mm -hmm. the kind of latent structure that that landscape offered us, the, the topography, the sort of informal landscape and the formal landscape, which was interesting, not a, a, you know, the sort of formal bit isn't 18th century, the formal bit is very early 20th century. Mm. Um, and that was in pretty poor condition, but it gave us enough structure to start to hang the buildings off it and geometrically, spatially, and in, in scale, conceive of, of, the, of the plan. Mm. And <clears throat> so I couldn't have said at the outset that's where we're going to end up. And then I think the thing that, uh, you know, my interest in post-war architecture, heavy uh, buildings, meant that we were trying to make sense of what was, as well as the typologies of the 18th and 20th century, but also the material uh, construction of the 18th and 20th century, and, and, and thinking that this was an impossible equation, you know, to square, as it were, because we can't build buildings the way we used to. And it's not like we can't build buildings the way we used to in the 18th century. We just can't even build buildings the way we did in the 20th century. Yeah. So we're more removed from the history of architecture than we've ever been before. Uh, if one thinks that architecture comes from the way we build, which I think I do, um, Whatever kind of preoccupations we, we all might have, whatever conceptual uh, overlays we place on it, in the end we have to build these things. Or I should probably say it's not about it's not it's not an obligation. Mm. It's actually it is it is the substance, it's the fabric, and and the configurations, the geometry, the scales actually do come in part from the capacity of materials to do things, but also the the capacity of the way things are to transmit their character into a building. And that's the bit that that uh, seems to elude us now as a generation, is that you know, it's largely down to the thermal performance of buildings that we ended up we end up now with often frames and, and we end up with skins, yeah. cladding, envelopes. I mean, the language of how we talk about, or at least the language in the way most architects now talk about making buildings is not the language which I imagine two or three generations ago they wouldn't have understood envelope cladding it's just not things that we used to talk about so that was yeah so that was the, the other side that we were trying to make sense of that problem and uh, and find a way of 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 building something as it were mm. as opposed to cladding something and so that's there's really kind of a lot of really interesting points that you've kind of raised, and they're really to do with the question of language. And I don't mean the language that we're using now. I mean the physical built thinking that a building might have and that that could be described as a kind of a language of sort. And, I mean, it's interesting because you've written several books, the most recent one being about brutalism, and you're positing brutalism as a living language that is still being um, you know still generating wonderful works of architecture and you cite Zumther and you cite Grafton's and your own work that there's a, there's, a, there's a community of practices globally making works that you describe as brutalist and I'm interested in this conversation about language where maybe we might unpick that a little bit further what is that philosophy that you see still living in, in the work of those people that you admire and in your own practice what is that how would you describe it? Um, I think there's a there's a dimension of sort of um, physicality for the uh, the pure uh, craft and aesthetic or the, the the substance, but there was also meaning. 
I think that's that's what's interesting. In other words, it it has a social dimension and it has a kind of cultural dimension that belief that these things should endure, but also that these things are a kind of a reflection of society. Now, as we seem to be moving faster and faster, building, uh, you know, literally physically moving faster and faster as it were around the globe, um, you, you know, spending less and less time. Uh, looking at more and more things, being distracted, that actually it's something which is heavy and uh, contemplative, uh, uh, is something that uh, demands our attention, but also reminds us of the of, of the permanence of a building, mm. and 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 that seems to be an ethical proposition in itself that we have the belief that this building must, whatever the building is, must endure. And, and in, in, in enduring, it becomes a reflection of, of that community that it serves, of the society it serves, as opposed to being a sort of glib, flippant, um, passing, passing event, as it were. Yeah, that's okay, because now that helps me understand a few things, because I'm thinking here of the way you've placed that column directly in front of the entrance door in one of the buildings in Chadwick Hall, or the forms of some of the stair halls or some of those deeply extruded facades that make um, the windows kind of heavily carved facades effectively. So there is this thing where on a superficial level the buildings have they have a presence but they are background and then they're continually placing themselves in your experience in a way which is quite figurative at times actually that that column for instance that everybody confronts as they enter or leave that building is almost is a social presence of the building and the lives of people either leaning against it to have a cigarette or just passing by it similarly with the handrails similarly at the windows so there's a sort of uh, I think what you're saying is that there's a philosophy where the social component of architecture is yes to house the life yes to house its users also to accept abuse but also to uh be part of the social constituency of its spaces, that in a way architecture has a presence along with human beings, human occupants, but that it is a social it is a social encounter with buildings. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a social encounter. I mean, I think again, there's, there's much sort of talk about about the social value or the uh, in fact, even more so than ever, somehow buildings and architects are obliged to be popular and to and to and to be obliged as it were to get it right to understand the people they're building buildings for to understand the community to to reflect somehow what people deserve and yet people make light of it because they m- most buildings are poorly planned and even if they are planned with sort of social structures morphological reflections of social arrangements they're not often backed up by substantial construction so the, so even if you can as it were frame the patterns of life you fail to reassure people of that uh, those enduring patterns if the thing that is containing them won't endure Mm-mm. i mean i think there's also you know th- these buildings are about rhythms and and I've talked about the idea of of common experience. The the one of the things that a certain type of building allows you to 
as it were, is literally to set up scenarios for collective experience, i.e. You know, larger spaces. These buildings don't have larger spaces. So one of the things you're trying to think about is, is how how these buildings might remind people of common experience. Mm-hmm. And this is, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 sort of I'm talking about Chadwick, I'm also talking about, you know, I mean, the thing about brutalism, of course, is that I think it's many things to many people. I mean, that's part of that my my uh, thesis was that that in different parts of the world at different times with different available materials and different sort of uh, political, social and economic scenarios, it manifests itself in different ways. But it, so it's about motives, but it is also about mindset. Um, but one of the ways, I suppose, of thinking about um, the fabric of buildings is that those those thresholds are going to be inhabited. Mm. And in inhabiting the threshold, i.e. in this case of a room, even if the room is a very modest thing, and it was because you know the space standards are dictated, the mm. budget is low, um, and in many respects the experience is quite predictable until you get to the threshold. So it is actually in the way that we construct things and the way we, we really question a wall or a facade or whatever you call it, that... that that um, that we we sort of do our work, mm. and I think that's kind of that's definitely a common theme within what one might wrap up in the in the brutalist canon. But it's both of those things. It's it's the configurations that people like Team Ten were exploring, which were those explicit social patterns. Yeah. Um, but it's also at the same time, it is the the capacity to um, to inhabit those structures either collectively or individually, but actually in doing it, even when you're alone, you're having common experience that you can associate, and then you have the potential, as it were, for common understanding and empathy. And So that sort of talks about typology too, then, in a way, so that there's the typology of Team 10 type, kind of structured social uh, context, right, that the building yeah. might be. And... And then there's also a typology of of previous forms of that, like the cloister or other types. And we see that in your work, you know, that you're 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 going back to this. And it is an interesting one, isn't it? Because as you were talking there, I was kind of going, was that what Ch- what Chicago was about with Sullivan and others, where there was a breakdown in typology, there was a breakdown of technology. In fact, actually, what they would have said was that very similar to what you had said, never before have we been so separated from our history. Here we are in this colonized continent, building buildings on a scale yeah. and in a manner never before imagined and at a pace never before conceived. And 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 they're trying to catch this flotsam of yeah. of a lost tradition in their mind. And in and in, in in the doing of that, they actually create an impulse which sort of well lands us here to an extent. It lands us in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting one because it seems to be a recurrent concern. And in your own life then do you think that's something that was with you from the start, like this kind of belief in robustness and solidity and craft and that side of architecture? Was this something when you were studying architecture that you were attracted to, or is this something that developed as you got going into practice and you saw the contingencies of buildings and that kind of thing? Uh, well, it's very easy, you know, looking back what is now decades, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to sort of leave out lots of things, but inevitably one sort of does, because you sort of conflate it. But uh, I studied at Liverpool. You know, we were taught quite a lot about James Sterling's work, Sterling and Gann, Sterling and Wilford. Um, 
And yeah, the very first field trip we went on took us to Leicester Engineering, but equally it took us uh, to um, to see Lasden's buildings at UEA. So, you know, those are the things I can remember. I don't remember what else we went to see. Well, I think we went to Cambridge as well, and I suspect, again, because we're talking about the sort of mid to late 80s, actually the, the post-war period of work, which you know, had run out, I suppose, by the end of the 70s, yeah. you're still looking at what I would broadly, well, I guess what you would call mainstream brutalism. Yeah. Um, and then uh, at the end of my second year, I, I, this, this won't turn into a complete holiday list, but I went to, I went to India and I discovered, well, not I discovered, but I discovered for myself, as it were, a phenomenon which you, you, which you weren't taught about in the history books. And, and, and of course, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't part of sort of European architectural history, um, which was the, the, the Indian Fort Palace, yeah. which are these extraordinary buildings built over quite a long period of time. We're talking hundreds of years. I want to say roughly sort of 1400 to 1700. I don't think I'm too far out. And they dis- they distinguish themselves from the European tradition because, crudely speaking, we built castles, then we invented cannonballs, and then we hired armies and built palaces. Whereas a number of things happened in Rajasthan that meant that a completely different scenario. I mean, the bit I don't really understand is why they kept building forts mm. when clearly they had cannons um, well into the, let's say, 1700s or 17th century, maybe maybe 1600s. Um, but that's what they did. And, and so what happened was you had lots of warring factions, families that kept falling out, brothers and cousins and whatever, and so they would find another hilltop, build another fortress. Um, they had families... Uh, it was hot weather. They would they would they would sort of decorate, as it were, the bits at the top. I.e., they would build palaces on top of their fortresses. So these great big lumps of rock would be kind of hewn and then stacked up with stone, and then gradually animated by more and more detail, was a reflection of their ostentatious life, which it kind of was. But also, it was really hot, um, and and so. They developed jarly screens with these uh, fine perforated stone screens, which basically gave shelter uh, and shade uh, and allowed a certain amount of light in and lots of air through, but kept space cool. And But, of course, it also concealed the women who lived in the building, and that was a religious sort of necessity, mm. or, but, but also, I guess, just to do with privilege. But there was a kind of... There was it was probably as much a prison yeah. <laughs> as it was a palace yeah. for certain parts of the family. Um, but there we are. You know, those buildings are are literally a kind of cultural artifact. They tell you so much about what what, what was going on, about the the climate, the the religion, uh, in a way, the politics, as in the mm. the, the politics of families not getting on, uh, warfare. And, and everything else. And all of this is played out in you know, the architectural detail, the substance of the building, the composition of the plan, the engineering. I mean, these are, these are very definitely heavily engineered buildings, but you can't help but be excited. That's true of any typology that emerges in a place, right? Isn't it? It, it, it speaks of the politics, it speaks of the economy, it speaks of, it speaks of things like uh, available um, skill sets, time other things like that and i mean that's why architecture is so consistently fascinating is that we can see these things mapped out and i guess one of the things that you're 
probably implying here is that some of those kind of deep structures of meaning which would have pertained to territorial architecture have obviously broken down as we've moved to a far more mobile, more multicultural, more heterogeneous kind of society, I guess. And so there's this kind of question then, isn't there? There's this kind of ethical question, which is in the context of contemporary architecture, what are the typologies which are emerging today, which people in 100 years time might be moved by in the same way? Or how do those conversations happen? Um, I don't have I don't have the answer. <laughs> but but, but the, one, the, one, the one thing that it does strike me as is that there has been a consistent oscillating around the issue of the thermal envelope since the 70s. Yeah. And it starts with the oil crisis and actually it becomes a theoretical concern then as a means to connect with history and the inside and the outside, etc. And a rejection of certain isms and and now we have it in this pluralistic kind of conversation we're having where your work is dealing with that in one way and um, Manadnox is dealing with it in another way yeah. and etc. And it does feel like there is this this questing for something and a kind of plurality of expression which reflects a pluralistic society mm-hmm. perhaps. Where I'm going with that I don't know other than to say that it does seem to put pressure on practices to have an ethical position distinctly grown for themselves, yeah. not as a means of self-expression, but simply as the only way that you can make decisions today. When everything's up yeah. for grabs, well, I think potentially, how do you make decisions? Well, I guess also there's a lot of architects, and I'm not, I mean, I'm talking about there's a lot of good architects who I don't think actually have an ethical position. I, I fear I'm about to contradict myself. But on one level, uh, I mean, we, we, we've lost lots of particular reasons for doing things yeah. in a kind of globalised world. But I guess we also, we can see again, sort of starting to see when you can have conversations, I've just come back from Sri Lanka, and the conversations I was having there are the conversations that we have here. And not that that was a surprise, but it was kind of, makes you smile, makes you happy that climatically, economically, culturally, they, we, you know, I was in a distinctly different place. But actually, you know, in a way, this is kind of a risky thing to say but I suppose my understanding of a good arch- of good architecture is, is sort of trying to mine that kind of existential purpose mm-hmm. because when so many other things are changing around you that that sort of weight that may not be a literal weight but that foundation that a building can offer and and, and hence your you know, your reference to typology I think is is really spot on because it's in a sense, what you are is, is you are configuring. You're not you're not determining or you're not uh, dictating, but you're enabling s- social patterns to form, and and you're making those in concrete ways, not necessarily literally concrete, but you know they're immutable. Mm. They 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 can't be. I mean, there is a schism between the spoken language and the architectural language, and yes. Critics and architects can exploit that and sort of reverse polarities of meaning and things. But on the whole, I think it does give, I think it helps to ground, I must, I believe, it helps to ground people uh, in, a, in a kind of turbulent world where the values are kind of, either there aren't values, as it were, I mean, there are values, where there is a kind of foil to the digital world, 
We're there as a foil to consumerism. Mm. We're there as a foil even arguably to capitalism. Even when we're working within a capitalist system, we're exploiting that to remind people that it is, you know, we're not just caught up in a, a world where it's all about transactions of, of money because we live in a world where, you know, growth seems to be the, the equation that makes nations, you know, when, when politicians and businessmen and so on talk about progress, they're, they're basically talking about, you know, it's either a sort of technocratic version of progress or, or it's a sort of economic version of progress. But the thing that, you know, we, we, we know as architects is that these things, these questions don't, it's not like we move on. We're still dealing with people. Mm. We're still dealing with the fact that we're sentient being, beings. We're still dealing with the fact that we're social beings. And we're still dealing with sort of the, the ergonomics. We're dealing with sort of scalar things which fundamentally don't change. It's not like we're, we're getting better at talking to more people at once in the sense of, you know, a room for 30 people was good, you know, would have certain connotations for those 30 people 500 years ago or today. Uh, and they'll have the same connotations in that time going forwards because it's, you know, it's our capacity to hear and understand, to get to know and to trust, to, to be neighbourly. These are all things which they're, 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 they're instinctual or they're, um, they are the capacity of our, our heads, our brains, our senses to work. It's, you know, it's about experience. Yeah. So those kind of experiences, irrespective of technological progress in a way the experiences that i think buildings can offer are enduring experiences yeah i mean the growth thing is an interesting one which we like that metric for a society to to take to all its political discussions and all of that conversation is such a recent thing and it's such a, a strange discussion point that you just hear it talked about casually in so many you know, the growth rates were dropped last month or whatever. And, OK, I can understand how a small section of our society, you know, when you get into the deep ocean and there's a, a volcanic vent and around that volcanic vent, there's heat and there's nutrients. So you get this ecosystem of strange malformed creatures spiraling around the vent. That's sort of the financial industry to me, which is that, yes, there's a vent and it's the financial system, all of this money spewing through it. And there's a cluster of life forms around that that may have a very nice existence in the cold that otherwise surrounds it. <laughs> but their proximity to the vent doesn't give them any sight as to what actually might be happening, why they exist and what their services. They serve only the purposes to survive themselves. And it is curious that that uh, ecosystem, which is how I understand our financial industry, really, uh, has become such a major part of conversation. If you want to talk about housing, there's an economist on. If you want to talk about hospitals, there's like, somebody talking on about the accounting system. And I do understand that money is a useful thing. But there are other ways to talk about these things which are not illegitimate, which are also legitimate, which are you are not... In some contexts, what you just said to me, somebody would throw back and say, well, that's hopelessly naive, you know, to be dictating or setting these ethical positions in the context of a world that doesn't give a jot if you do or you don't. But it's not naive. It has always been the calling of architecture to do this. And that's a really 
I mean, this is a big topic to kind of be opening up. Because <laughs> one of the things that kind of frustrates me is then, yeah, you have an ethical position and uh, most architects of talent actually do. And then we are in an industry where for some reason that ethical ethical position can also mean that you don't get work, right? So if you, if you want to get more work, ethics aren't really useful in that setting. Or are they? I mean, I'm asking as somebody who's now 40, right? So yeah. a little bit further back than you. We have an ethical practice. We don't see how that practice will allow us to connect with the work that we kind of that we want to do yeah. because so many of the systems that measure you to access work are not about whether you have an ethical position on architecture. They're about what your balance book looks like and what your insurances yeah. are, etc. Now, you've managed to get to a point where you're doing work of scale and you're doing work all over London of scale. So you would be a counterexample. But do you think that was something that happened accidentally or meritocratically? Was that something you had to really fight for? Did the ethics help? Did the quality help? How did that happen? How did you grow your practice? Uh, I think I, 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 I'm convinced that the ethics did help in the end because yeah. actually I can't really explain what we do any other way. Yeah. You know, I... I I want to talk about the the sort of intelligent parts of a building, whether that's the intelligent planning of the building or whether it's the intelligent construction of the building. I mean, yeah, an economy of means is a is also you know is a is a great thing to deploy, uh, and, and that's a, yeah I guess so that that is one dimension of perhaps how we uh, might appeal to to sort of clients who are going to commission larger projects but i mean we're talking a 24 year period yeah from start to here yeah. as it were actually we've probably got you know, we haven't got that many clients what we've got is clients who give us now a reasonable amount of work or at least a number of projects and and, and that must be because they trust us mm. and it must be because in a sense that we we're quite kind of critical of ourselves as it were but you know, I suppose the situations within which we work we don't make light of things um, I, 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 it's kind of hard without sort of pointing to something and, and saying but also it's all you know it perhaps oversimplifies things just to look at literal projects for how they appeal but um, you know as in how they bridge that uh, what seems like a chasm between what might be an ethical position and a plausible proposition in a in a world of of capitalism and and so on but i mean interestingly enough i politicians who who let's talk about the politics for a moment Mm. there's lots of politicians who want to talk about homes or rather housing and they'll refer to units yeah in other words they don't understand the the value of a dwelling yeah all they're interested in is the, the political numbers Okay, so so we have a practice now that you've you've got to this point and you have this trust built up with all of these clients and all of that. And how did that begin? That decision. So twenty four years ago, before you were with the practice, and after you've left college, what were you doing, and how did you come to the position to get into the practice and grow the practice to the point that you are today? We might. It's a long story. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I started at Liverpool with Gavin Hale-Brown. Yeah. And, uh, and along the way, we've had a couple of other partners. But but in the end, it's the two of us. Yeah. Um, after he left, you know, after we left college, he went to Japan. Uh, I'd previously been and studied in the States. And we both converged back in London. And we started making very modest projects. 
Um, right from the word go, I mean, a lot of our work was interiors to start off with, just for the first few years. And it, and actually, that in a way, that, that although one might talk about materials and tectonics, because we weren't really constructing things, although we were desperately trying to construct things. And, and at the time, I was explaining what we were doing as, as making maquettes. We were kind of... In the way that mm. you know, an artist might make a maquette for a big sculpture, we were sort of making buildings in buildings. Yeah. Um, like warming and, up. And, and then, and then, and then we, you know, and then we, uh, we, we wanted to not be doing that. We wanted to build buildings, and so we, as much by accident as by intention, but in the end, I mean, it was intentional. We wanted to do s social projects, probably more than other things. We wanted to do uh, housing and schools and health centres, but but I couldn't say we wanted to do all those things. I guess we started to sound like we were interested in those things because we were. Yeah. And of course, and one of the things we were doing is we were working, we were adapting buildings. Once we were, once we'd moved on, as it were, from literally just being confined to the interiors of buildings, and we were adapting buildings, not necessarily listed or heritage buildings, but we were adapting things. That that gave us the freedom to move between not types of buildings but sectors because our expertise was working with existing buildings yeah um yeah i've no idea whether, in a way whether this is interesting but it is it an is, interesting it way is, yeah. of thinking about the way the practice evolved because that definitely gave us uh an uh, ways of 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 moving into you know to doing other things whether it was a school or a or a um housing or and is that also where the kind of uh interest in robustness comes from in a way which is that if you're working with existing structures you become keenly aware of how easy it is to knock a hole in some things or what areas are so resistant that you can't and you need to really work around them that 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 working with an existing structure the parameters are so established so many of them that that a lot of the work of the architect is well discovering those in the first place but then also learning to work within that grammar in a way yeah and is that too direct a link for me to say that? No, no, that's yeah. absolutely yeah, exactly because you know when you know a lot of the buildings that we started with were, were brick buildings. We were starting with were brick buildings, and you know they were load bearing brick buildings. They might have incorporated cast iron columns and 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 bits of frame, but they were substantial buildings. And and we weren't being systematic; we were being intuitive. I mean, yeah, there's a number of things. One is is that when we were working with. Uh, when you're working with things that already exist, one of the dimensions of practice is latency. You're not you're not establishing geometries and orders, and you're not actually choosing materiality of construction and the relationship between construction and structure. You're discovering these things. You're in a sort of archaeological process, which is literally the case, of course, with materials. But it, but it's also sort of morphological because the thing that I found myself explaining to others was that th th there was morphological latency in buildings mm. and in other words you know it, they, it's where they had they had potential mm. so and, and then and then you know inevitably there was a kind of lightness of touch generally around the buildings because actually you know these let's call them early 20th or 19th century and backwards buildings you know actually re adapting them is is more like repairing them 
it's not as soon as you move to a frame mm. then of course you start just peeling all the layers off and do back to frame and and i because we hadn't done one when I, I went to speak at a conference in japan about 15 years ago and um on 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 the subject and this was having spent about five years adapting buildings and they obviously thought that i knew something about the subject and i had to kind of rethink the whole thing because i because it's not that we hadn't thought about it but it was a craft and it was a you know we approached it building by building and brief by brief and it wasn't particularly systematic mm. in you know in the sense that it, it wasn't it wasn't a product that you could bring as a methodology yeah i mean probably you know in, in a sort of in a sort of hum, in the way that humanities exist as a research field i guess it was a kind of you know we were clearly researching the question of how to adapt buildings yeah. but we were in dialogue with buildings on a one on one basis not sort of generalizing about what the the sort of strategies that people might bring yeah. to these buildings might be you were looking you weren't doing an overview you were working case by case yeah and that conversation was in a way changing how you thought about architecture as well as developing this position yeah. yeah and in the background maybe i was drawing on things like i mean i studied in the states for a year and um that meant that I went to see all of Louis Kahn's buildings in the States. Mm. And so there is that other sort of um, uh, dimension at the back of it. I, I, I often sort of talk about the idea of uh, having mentors. Uh, my mentors are dead. <laughs> yeah. And they, always, and, and they sort of always have been in the sense that although my life overlapped with Sterling's life and you know, sort of officially, technically, I suppose, my life overlapped with Khan's life just by a few years. But these aren't people I've met, but they're people whose buildings that you can go back to again and again and again. And, and, and the conversation that you have, as it were, supported by other things that people have written. You know, of course, there's more and more critical thinking about both of those architects. But you go back 20, 30 years, there was much less. Yeah. That, when they go from being... Um, live architects to uh, immediately forgotten architects to then critically uh, thought about architects. Yeah, we, we're in both of those cases. We ha we're now in that period, and for Sterling, it's sort of ten years, and for for Khan, it's maybe twenty years. Yeah, yeah. And there's mythologies that build up in that, and some of them are helpful, and some of them are not, etc. And I mean, the Khan one is interesting. So, which. Which works really impacted on you uh, when you saw, or you don't even have to have seen them physically, but which works do you kind of continually find yourself using as touchstones by can? So, yeah, I mean, this is not as in sort of literal references, but one can't help having gone to visit, say, Salk, yeah. and stood on the edge of the Pacific between those two wings of laboratories with the, um, you know, uh, the, the, the studies with the laboratories behind that space is basically a clock. Hmm. It is. It is. It is so clearly established as some kind of quasi-scientific <laughs> space in which to observe time, weather, seasons, light, you know, all as it were imprinted on that space. So I mean, that's one. Um, another one, I think, is um, the Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, yeah. which is very interesting because it's. It, it, well, along with the building in Dakar, I think those are really the only two buildings that that, that uh, sort of got built outside the Western world, let's say. And and in the case of, of the Institute of Management, it's not well. The, probably the the climate is more demanding, but also I suspect the 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 construction was 
was was uh, well the, the bricks would have been local and made a certain way and the maintenance is a different thing so what you've actually got is a building that's returning to being a ruin yeah it is the it is the one building which is going to kind of fulfill the not not that it was a necessity for his buildings to turn into ruins in the way that he was fascinated by the ruins but it is the one building that will do that mm. so it will kind of make that will make a connection with his sort of curios- curiosities and uh, and uh, uh, preoccupations in a way that none of the others will and the other one because I've got to say as well I mean the Exeter Library yeah. is just the most extraordinary building because it conflates two typologies it takes the crossing of a cathedral and it melds it with basically domestic space so it's this hmm. extraordinary elastic experience which I actually can't think that I can't think of another building that does it and again you know it is an almost cosmic experience because you're reminded of the fact that you are small mm. as it were relatively we're all small and we can be placed in that very large space elevated in the piano noble at the center of the space between the huge circles cut out of the concrete we're in a space which is really recalling a roughly one millennium old space a medieval cathedral and then within a few yards we can retreat to the most modest of sort of domestic spaces and it's that it it seems to say just about everything it needs to say about humanity so yes yeah, so that's i mean that's quite a set of references there because i'm kind of thinking as you're talking that the library is about the spatial potential of things you know this being aware of one's size and yet there's a dignity in that in the same being aware of one's insignificance and there's a dignity in that, in the same space, right? It, it does those yeah. two things. No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the word dignity is, is actually spot on because even though we're small, it's not a belittling experience. Yeah. Actually, it's an elevating experience. It's an extraordinary kind of uh, sense to be in that space. And then the, um, th- as, you're, as you're talking, then I'm uh, thinking of the Institute of Management and I've not been, but formally it appears so resonant. I mean... It's like, I mean, Tom Dupuyer used this analogy about uh, a bit building by Caesar in this series of conversations, but it's an opposite one because it, it's like every, like every building you haven't seen, you've never seen before. Like it has a familiarity and yet a strangeness at the same time, and it's in its formal language. It has this, those battened walls, the way the the volumes are uh, disposed and cut into. Uh, it has the and you yeah it has the quality of ruination but I can see those formal games in your work too like there's a kind of I don't quite know what the words are do you know like a battening at the bottom of a building which gives it a heft as it sits into the ground or an almost figurative head as it begins to rise in some of the school projects and uh, and they have resonances with some of the fortifications that you would have described and that kind of thing now not literally the the Indian ones but other types of kind of fortified architecture. And then the soak as a typological concern. And, I mean, I think the idea doesn't it come from Assisi in places like this. It's the kind of, it's a typological transplantation, but then it makes this place for advanced science using, well, at once a new and a very old typology, the stacks laboratories being new mm-hmm. in the service court, but then the space between and the way they hold that space between being utterly, utterly timeless. And so... 
I guess the one thing we haven't touched on here in the conversation is out of those that triumvirate is form because we've talked about topology and we've talked about space and we've talked about social potential but you do have an interest in form and your work has a clear formal um, exuberance might be too forceful a term but you are aware of the potentials of form as to convey some kind of character and meaning to your building and I'm interested in that also uh, how do you work that how do you see that what are your thoughts on form as distinct to anything else that we've talked about it's probably the one, I think it's the hardest one to talk about because in a way it's well it's not always subjective but I guess there is a huge subjectivity to it I think um, it's almost like it's the tacit bit it's the unspoken bit it's the private bit it's the bit I don't have to necessarily explain, explain. yeah you know, I, ha- I have to explain a plan I want to explain a plan I want to explain why it's the right thing because yeah. in the end, you know, why it's the right thing for a client, as much as it might be the right thing, as it were, for our own purposes, our own thinking. Yeah. But but form is a kind of... I mean, of course, well, we're talking... I mean, you can take it back to type. Type manifests itself both in in, in plan and in form. And, and, and that type derives itself from, in a way, from vernaculars, materials, what they're capable of doing, spaces they're capable of making... Uh, and forms that they therefore translate into. Of course, that isn't necessarily the case anymore, as we sort of started with this whole kind of question of you know, the way we might build something is now so removed from the way it may appear that actually form it has a much looser relationship. And, and so, in a way, it is, it is a kind of free spirit. I was thinking of that quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he says, if you start with a character you'll find that in no time at all you've created a type. But if you start with a type, you'll find in no time at all that you've created nothing. And what, what I, what's interesting in that conversation is that he's talking about the novel and the art of the novel and the generation of figures in, in a novel. But, 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 but I think it's a really interesting one because he's basically saying is that if type is an abstraction of character, that to, 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 to start with a type means that you're you're actually moving on the way away from the character. Whereas actually in this conversation, I see form in your work as the character. So you start, like there is a character at work in the form which is distinct from the type. The type has a relationship with that character, but it, it requires that character to give it a grain, to give it a texture. Whereas if you start with a typology, it just reduces itself to line and then it can be anything. And it it does feel like um, a lot of the architects that you cite uh, do that same thing. And it, it seems to be a method like Can does the same thing. There is a formal game with Can and a material game and a typological game and an advanced structural technological game. Right. Yeah. And they're not they're not un- unimaginably distinct. They're the same brain yeah. working. Yeah. Graftons have exactly the same thing. I mean, they have super advanced structural attitudes going on and an almost primal sense of space. Yeah. So their, ab- their ability to play fast and loose with time is extraordinary. And others that we can talk about, Brazilian modernists, yeah, Bobardi yeah. and others have that same thing. And even Ticinese architects. It basically insists on all architecture as a living present, not a historical 
repository that we can't look at anymore. These things are all available to us. They're all uh, part of that world. And, and again, it's not naive to think in those terms, to mm. think about character, despite the fact that the contemporary building industry uh, suggests by the materials it makes that character is sort of an impossibility yeah, in yeah, a way. Yeah. While you were talking and you were describing, say, Kahn and, and Grafton, I, I was sort of nodding because I was thinking... And that's partly, and partly my explanation for form is that, you know, it is a dialogue. It's a kind of, well, you know, it's completely alive in the process hmm. as a kind of reconciliation. As, as, as I, I mean, you're sort of melding. I find what we're doing is a, we're melding what might be a, a, a group of things, group of rooms into something which has a recognisable character mm. in a way that... So, for example, you know, a lot of our work has concentricity in it. I don't mean literally it's circular, and, and I'm sure you don't think that either, but in the sense that, you know, th- there is a sort of gravitational field around something mm. at the heart of the building, let's say, and there's, a, there's that sort of dynamic or that geometric construction. And, and, and that's, you know... A lot of 20th century buildings, and possibly even 19th century buildings, and you know, the emergence of the corridor at, at, at a certain point as a kind of, perhaps even to just to do with decorum to start off with, that things couldn't be arranged en filade because it meant people walking through things they shouldn't walk through and seeing the things they shouldn't see. At some point, it means that we start to string rooms out along mm. corridors. And, and, and not only do we do that in the 19th century, but we definitely go full steam ahead in the 20th century and everything is strung out along corridors so there's a sort of there's linear structures seems to be a recurrent pattern Mm. through much of the 20th century sort of linear organizations of buildings and and that's something we've consciously resisted um is something which uh, as it were has a compactness whatever size it is we, we we're looking for um a pattern that doesn't just coincidentally arrange things as if they're all facing the sun or Mm. Uh, you know, kind of looking a certain way, but actually, all those things have a relationship to each other, and that requires, therefore, it to have a, a configuration. It has, it has an anatomy, has a, has a, uh, it becomes a body. Yeah, I think that's kind of yeah, and, and 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 most of our buildings, therefore, kind of in the end, they're bodies, and there's a really good correlation, I think, between the 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 anatomy which, as it were, is the armature that holds all the pieces together and the body that contains hmm. that. So, you know, without sort of labouring the point, but the analogy with sort of, you know, as it were, with anatomy and so on is, is really quite plausible. Yeah. And it's one, again, that architects have kind of recurrently addressed throughout history, you know, from Alberti, you know, all the way through hmm. we, this, this, this analogical relationship to the... To something having a heart or some kind of corpus and that there is an elemental relationship that you can't just distend these things forever, that there there needs to be some kind of coherent embodied form to these things mm. to give a building a sense of themselves. It takes the ambiguity away, or rather it takes the, uh, the, uh, the random kind of functional dimension away, you know, almost as if that sense that there is a right answer or whatever. No, well, that's not right the way of putting it either, but... There's a an impersonality, I think, to a lot of buildings. Somehow, as if they're they're doing what's expected. 
and it's that and it's that correlation probably between form and all and, and type and and um, and the plan uh, which which is really our us coming to some resolution for the project that is not typical by which I don't mean type but you know yeah unexpected and, and often having to do with things that already exist because that's of course what rec- what makes them recognizable and in fact it's the very fact that people search out the unrecognizable that makes them arguably lack meaning Again, yeah this is my perspective but um you know we rely we we do I think we rely on memory and when we don't you know we rely on memory to communicate if we talk about things that people recognize however sort of remote they are and how distant they are that we have common ground it, obviously there is a body of practice which is literally trying to innovate literally trying to shock and surprise and whatever and 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 there is r- room for that within what we're doing and what we're talking about but actually uh, for for those who i think make things that are sort of un incomprehensible well it's not that they're right or wrong but they're simply things i don't want to do yeah yeah, they, they don't have any value to you to draw from or to... I don't want to bewilder people. I don't want people to not know what to think. I want people to to be fond of our buildings. Hmm. That sounds like a nice place that we might wrap things up, unless you have the things we haven't addressed that you'd like us to talk about. We could keep going. We can, <laughs> and we will, because we work together. But well, we always close these interviews with a question, um, which is that if you had a piece of advice to give somebody studying architecture today, what what would it be? I would travel. Yeah. I mean, as the professor of the school, you won't like the sound of this, but I'd close the school and send everybody off with a with a, a you know a budget for for a field trip. Yeah, so in the end, I think it's that p- personal discovery, and it's as much about what you go and see as what you realise when you come back. Because of course, you see the world through a new, le- through a, through a different lens, as it were, when you go away. But you, more equally importantly, you see the world that you took for granted afresh. Yeah, and um, and it's something you could, you, you sort of have to do on your own. I mean, you can go with other people, but yeah, there is a, there's a much more intense dialogue between you the you you the you the individual and and the individual building i mean as long as you are armed with sketchbooks and tape measures and and those kind of things and you're actually really curious about its sort of um you know its physical properties its dimensions its geometry um it, its way it's constructed typologies and those kind of things all those things that actually you can glean if you're not just pointing a camera at it and trying to do too much at once yeah, you know, there's probably ten or twenty buildings that, you know, there's lots of different ten or twenty buildings, but but most people could educate themselves from choosing the right ten or twenty buildings and spending an awful lot of time in them, looking at them, drawing them, and understanding, and then reading about them. Yeah, because then once you have that level of familiarity, you can come back. You don't have to spend the rest of your life there. You're then into this dialogue, which is personal. So that yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by that because. Uh, I absolutely agree that travel is really important and that we need to see things and get out of our comfort zone and learn how to look at ourselves with new eyes, etc. And then at the same time, I'm also... And actually, maybe maybe more so here now that I've been working in, in, in the UK for quite a while, how few people travel inside the UK. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you don't have to go too far. You don't have to go very no, no. far. Yeah, like that's the thing is that, you know, London's full of remarkable things that you could spend your life looking at London and never yeah. finding. But it's a, it's getting to that almost um, zen-like state of of receptiveness and distance, which yeah. which you which you struggle to do in a familiar context, and hence we don't really focus and concentrate in a, around things that are all too familiar, and 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 even as a pedagogic kind of uh, discipline, revelation, yeah. I suppose, to go far away, to make a pilgrimage, to be placed in a different culture, a different climate, a different something, and therefore to confront this building in those contexts, as long as you're thinking about this context, I think you're much more likely to be sort of vulnerable to its complexity and its depth and you know, what, what you can learn from it. If you then learn that technique, you can bring it back to a place, and it is almost like um, you know, the, the the capacity to um, what's the right word? Meditate. You know, you have to kind of. You know, then it's possible to come back to somewhere that's cluttered and noisy, yeah, as it were, cacophonous, yeah, and see uh, unfamiliar, and and to then get into a kind of meditative state with something which is, which is in, seems to be normal. That's great. So thanks very much, Simon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to Simon for his time and his insights. Do remember to subscribe and to leave your comments. It all helps. Before signing off, I'd just like to thank Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder and Laura Evans who are all helping with the Register work in one way or another. Do join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.